Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the NDP claims to have more documents surrounding the Ford government's plan for Ontario's health care system. Is there something stirring in the world of organized crime? And will the Ontario government's plan for health care hurt mental health and addiction services? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Late last week, we talked to the Minister of Health and uh, about a leaked document uh, that uh, was surfacing at Queen's Park. Uh, we were told the, these were revisions to, well, the way health care is delivered here in the province of Ontario. So uh, we, we got Christine Elliott on the phone, the health minister, of course, and she says, no, 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 nothing to see here. This is fine. This is, this is okay. It's just a very, very early draft, and there's going to be a lot more communication and a lot more public consultation, yada, 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 yada. Well, we're told that uh, later on this morning the NDP are going to release more what they consider to be confidential documents uh, that uh, point what they say a privatization of the healthcare system. Um, not so sure what's going to be contained in these things, but obviously where there's smoke, there's fire. At least that's what uh, the NDP seems to be saying. Anyway, joining us to talk about this is uh, Richard Brennan, who of course uh, retired journalist now, but who covered Queens Park for many, many years and uh, Parliament Hill for that matter as well. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, uh, how many times did this happen? I mean, as you're covering Queen's Park there, somebody delivers a, a, a plain manila envelope and says, hey, guess what's in here? Uh, well, a very deep throat-ish, isn't it? Oh, I, I tell you, I can't tell you. I think I tweeted this the other day. I can't tell you the number of times that I was leaked uh, brown envelopes that exposed what the government was trying to do behind the scenes. And to a minister, it was always... Oh, this is just an early draft. You know, this doesn't really mean anything, or et cetera, et cetera. And then you know, uh, you know, at that point that they're scrambling. Yeah. And that's what's happened here is that he, you know, that there there is a lot of um, push in the background with this uh, with the uh, Tory party with respect to trying to get get uh, more. Of the private sector involved in public, uh, you know, in our healthcare system, there's no question about that. Well, I, the minister denied it, of course, uh, when I had her on the program on Friday. He has nothing to see here. That seemed to be the the mantra, uh, and clearly, uh, as as I'm sure you've experienced too, uh, it was pretty obvious to me about two minutes into the interview that she had her talking points down pat. Oh, absolutely. Well, you, you know, there's something in. It. I mean, this was this was this was a very detailed. Um, you know, a briefing and, 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 and well, I, I'd call it, you know, the makings of legislation, quite frankly. And, you know, just by, you just have to read it to know that they're, they're serious about having the private sector deliver more of our health care. Mind you, it's already done. The Shoulders Clinic is privately run, but, you know, publicly funded. And that's what they're talking about here. They're not talking about a two tier. Uh, not at this point yet, anyway. A two-tier system. Well, it's uh, I, again. You have to I'm question motivation and what's going on here too. And 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 you know the NDP obviously have their motivations for this. The government has their motivation on this. And there's there's really a philosophical war of words going on here, isn't there? Well, there's a philosophical, but there's also there's also a war going on that we're not even seeing, and that's with the bureaucracy. Somebody within the bureaucracy gave that to the NDP, and and you, you know that they're trying to you know stir the pot and let the public know what uh, what uh, you know what some of the things this government is looking at. 
How often does that happen? Oh, I mean, these, these are these are civil servants, and, and and let's face it, probably a lot of them have been there for quite a long time now. I mean, you know, the liberals were in power for, what, 16 years, something like that. Now, yeah. I'm not suggesting that they're all liberals in there, but, but obviously, you know, they may not be elected officials, but at the same time, they have ideas how they think the ministry should be run. Oh, absolutely, and believe me, there's liberal people. Uh, I call them liberal spies uh, in, in, in the uh, uh, bureaucracy who... Got jobs just before the whole thing fell fell through for the liberals, and they moved over from the political side to the bureaucratic side. So there, are, there are people, excuse me, there who really, you know, believe that what this government is doing is not right. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm just saying what they're what they believe. And it's interesting to see that this is kind of the game within the game, isn't it? Uh, and because uh, we, we've seen this happen, I mean, it doesn't matter who's in the corner office at Queens Park, whether it's a liberal NDP or a conservative. Uh, it seems as if there's always an ongoing battle, or at least seemingly there is, uh, about, you know, do we have staff in line here? And and we've seen way too many examples, of course, over the last number of years where the answer is no, they don't. Uh, we've got rogue staff members that seem to be doing things on their own, and that seems to be another situation what happened on Thursday. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, you know, these people, there are people in the bureaucracy that certainly have an affiliation with one party or, or another. I mean, we have a very good bureaucracy. Uh, I'll complain about them all the time, but really, the, the truth is that we have a very good, good civil service or public service in Ontario. But that doesn't mean there aren't outliers there who are willing to, you know, show up the government for, for what it is. And if I just for a moment, if I was an editorial cartoonist in a newspaper, I, what I'd be doing right now is drawing a picture of Queen's Park with <clears throat> trial balloons floating all over Queen's Park. A lot of this stuff is just that. The business with respect to all day kindergarten or kindergarten. You know what? And all this you know, that came out of nowhere and they and they say, you know, they drop, they kind of drop the hint that they're going to do this, and all of a sudden, they they say, oh no, we're not. We listened, and everybody claps and says, hooray for the, you know, hooray for the Ford government. They're listening, and that was the same thing with uh, with respect to the uh, the green belt. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're saying that, oh yes, we've heard people, and we're not doing this. There's no way we're going to do that. So a lot of this is just testing the waters. And and they find that it just you know it's just unpalatable for whatever reason, and they they look like the heroes for the day. But they, like you say, there's a strategy to this. And do, do they factor in just how much pushback they're going to get on this and figure, okay, if this, if this goes on for more than two or three days, maybe maybe this was a bad idea. If we don't hear a whole lot of anything, yeah, well, maybe we'll just run with it. Well, I, absolutely, it's it's all testing water because they're trying you know they're trying to get billions of trying to get billion dollars billions of dollars out of the system. So they're they're looking for any way they can do it. So they'll test the waters and see. Well, you know, there's a billion dollars for all day uh, <clears throat> all day kindergarten. So maybe maybe that'll fly. And then they test it and say, well, <clears throat> you know what? I don't think so. And the same with the green belt. And I, this, I mean, this could be. I mean, I, I don't believe the government <laughs> leaked this, but I believe that this has a lot to do with just testing the waters with respect to, you know, is, is the public at this point prepared to allow the private sector more access to our health care system? 
Which is not a, a new idea. I mean, this has been kicked around for the longest time. And, and as you say, uh, anybody who thinks that this is just a totally public system to begin with is, is you know, looking at it rather narrowly because there are some some private individuals that oh, are involved in this. And as you say, clinics, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and some of them are actually getting OHIP funding. So it's, it's, almost, it's not quite a hybrid, but, I mean, we're going down that direction. But this is, again, this philosophical difference that the NDP will always want everything to be government-owned, and the, the conservative mantra seems to be, no, let the private sector do it. We're just going to provide core services. But I thought healthcare was one of those core services. Well, absolutely. And this is what, this is where they're really on thin ice, because people in Ontario and, and right across Canada value the universal health care system. And, and they know that it's not all public, you know, it's publicly funded, but it's not all, you know, it's not all publicly provided. But when you start messing with health care, they, you know, you're really treading on thin ice because that's something that Canadians take very seriously. Well, and it's easy to, to start, I guess, getting the monsters out here from the closet, too, and say, you know what they're going to do? They're going to start closing hospitals. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Because uh, we saw examples of that not too many years ago. And uh, it's it's easy, I guess, to dig up those things again and, and start to scare the daylights out of people. Well, and I mean... And rightly so. There, I forget how many. I mean, I wrote about it at the time, but my memory's not what it was. Uh, but you know, they closed hospitals right across the, that. Then, then Harris government closed hospitals right across the province, including right down the road in Brantford, they closed in St. Joe's. Yep. And uh, you know, people in Brantford will. There's a lot of people in Brantford that will never forgive them for that. And now they're they're really reaping not the benefits, but the contrary uh, to that. Now with what let's say one hospital in Brantford and it's just so overcrowded it's unbelievable. Well, and, and again, when I had this conversation with uh, with Minister Elliott on Friday, and and she seemed to iterate at that time that look at this is as you've talked about just as a very early draft of this. Uh, there's a lot of detail in here. I mean, to the point where they've actually pretty much decided from the document that we saw anyway, they're going to blow up about five or six different agencies and replace them with this what they call a super board. Oh, and I, well, I think that that's that leaked out before, even yeah. before this was leaked. There, uh, there will be a lot of people that uh, you know in the system that is are familiar and work in the healthcare system that will not shed a tear over Lynn's being uh, you know dealt with because it really became just a it became a a holding pattern for a lot, honest God, they did, and, and anybody knows this, the system, this is absolutely true, a holding pattern for a, a lot of liberal liberals' uh, supporters and operatives. Well, and I, I served on the District Health Council, which was the forerunner of that, and then it kind of blended into the lens, and, and the, their mantra always was, well, you know, this is this is a local voice in healthcare delivery. Uh, and I suppose on a theoretical level, that kind of makes a little bit of sense. But, you know, there's, there was just story after story about inefficiency and cost overruns with just about all of them. Yep. And, and I know that anybody, you, if you know anybody who's worked in a hospital, like I say, uh, right, from, right from the top to the bottom, don't have a lot of good things to say about the lens. I'm not so sure one's super body is going to you know, do much better. Well, isn't that a, a situation where they're just going to say, okay, we're going to take out that liberal bureaucracy and replace it with our own? Yes. Basically. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. It'll be, it may be, you know, it may be uh, more encompassing somehow, but it'll, it'll be just, it'll be full of, uh, you know, uh, conservative uh, 
people who voted conservative and, and supported conservatives and have been very much involved in the conservative party. You can just bet on it, and that's the way it works. And that's and that's the game. I mean, we understand that's the way things are played. But I mean, you have to wonder about the ramifications and the cost in this, and just how much of this they've thought through. And 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 to her point that well, look, at, there's going to be a lot more consultation about this. I don't know who they consulted with to begin with, you know, because they seem to have a number of recommendations already. And you talk to different groups, and uh, whether it's a healthcare delivery or, of course, some of the other things that they've kind of shot up there as trial balloons to do with the education system. And the people that you would think would be stakeholders just saying, not didn't talk to us. I don't know where they're getting this from. Well, my question is, is this going to save money? Is this going to, is this going to get rid of uh, you know, hallway medicine? That's, that, to me, is the, the biggest and most important issue. Will it save money? Are you going to get savings and, and make it more efficient, yet better? And, you know, are people not going to be spending, you know, 38 or 36 or 48 hours in, in, a, in a hallway waiting to be, you know, waiting to be looked after? That's, that's really what I think people are concerned about and want to know. They, they, they could care less about whether it's Lynn's or super body or whatever the heck you might want to call it, they want to know when they go to the hospital, are they going to be looked after in a timely fashion? Well, that's the bottom line. Yeah, but it, you have to juxtapose that with what seems to be uh, one of their stated goals here is, as you say, to try to reduce the deficit and to cut spending. And I, I understand. I don't think anybody is going to suggest now they're just going to throw money at it and that's going to make the problem go away. But if this is a complex idea here and a complex problem that they're facing here. And if you want to eliminate what they call hallway medicine, that means you need more long-term care beds, more hospice care beds. I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, infrastructure that has to be built. That's going to cost money. Well, and just like you said, Bill, that's really is, that really is the important issue, and that's to build uh, long-term care. And they, that should have been done, but it hasn't. And that's what really is the choke point in, in the in the delivery of health care in the hospitals is that we have folks who should be dealt with elsewhere in nursing home or you know long term care whatever you want to call it, and they're taking up you know active beds, and I, you know this is this is I don't know why this is a surprise to anybody that the baby boomers are aging. And we're already hearing that they're, you know, they're they're really they're it's a glut, and and they're you know putting pressure on the system. Well, <laughs> you didn't see that coming, I, and it doesn't seem like anybody's really absolutely prepared to deal with this, and that means long-term care beds. Well, uh, we'll see what uh, the NDP have to say about this. They say there's some more documents they're going to release later on today. And, uh, well, we're still, what, about 10 days away from the House getting back together to, to come into some of this legislation. Then we can start dealing with things like Bill 66 and whatever this bill is going to be called, too. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. You betcha. Richard Brennan, of course, longtime uh, journalist uh, with the uh, Toronto Star covering Queen's Park and uh, obviously Parliament Hill for many, many years. And we'll see. We'll see what the uh, the government has to say. Uh, in response to the NDP leaked documents. And that's going to start a whole other conversation, of course, about who leaked it. Was it illegal? Did they hack into somebody's system? So this is this is going to get a lot more complex before it's done. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as you've been uh, hearing on CHML News, uh, three shootings in the Hamilton area in the last couple of years. Uh, we are told all the victims 
uh, connected to organized crime, one of just recently, a couple of days ago, of course, up on the East Mountain on the Brow. Joining us to talk about this is Peter Edwards. Peter, of course, staff reporter and uh, crime writer for the Toronto Star. He's also an author of a number of books about organized crime, and he's the uh, executive producer and consultant for the TV series Bad Blood, uh, which is a book that he co-authored along with Antonio Nicasso, uh, based uh, loosely on uh, the life and times of uh, Vito Rizzuto. Uh, and always a welcome guest on the program. Peter, welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us today. Uh, good to be here. What's going on here? Um, you know, the, the real the one thing we can say for sure is there's a restructuring. Um, how much Buffalo plays into it, how much Woodbridge plays in, and how much um, uh, personal instability plays in, you know, those are all variables. But... Um, uh, there's a, a new guard coming in. So, w- when did the dominoes start to fall? Then, uh, what's what is? Is there one event, one incident uh, that that actually started this thing going? Um, it's, it's hard to really say. But, I mean, there were gambling debts, and then it comes to when do you pay the debts, and when can you walk away from debts? Like a lot of these guys are are stiffing each other all the time, and. Um, for some of them, they don't really think they have to pay them, and so um, I think when the Violi brothers uh, were were charged, things started to swing. Like all of a sudden, it looked like some some guys are going to be off the streets. Also, it um, it really undermined that group because it came out that a, a police agent had infiltrated that a paid police agent had actually been um, been working with them, and it it looked really bad on them that they were duped by this guy. Who's calling the shots here? I mean, in a number of the other books that you've written about this, uh, Peter, you've talked about a structure, in it, and and we've seen the the org charts, I guess, uh, you know, to try to define exactly uh, where the, the, the deals are coming from, who's calling the shots here. Because uh, the influence is obviously, there's, as you mentioned, there's Buffalo, there's there's New York, uh, there's Montreal, uh, there's Toronto. I mean, and, and at some point, I guess you have to ask yourself just uh, who's who's, you know, who's taking the orders, who's giving the orders at this stage? Yeah, see, where it gets really interesting, and I was just talking with with someone who knows a lot about this stuff, is that um, there might be a lot going on in Buffalo, but it's not being monitored like the old days, so you don't have people drawing up those charts, like the people who normally would have those jobs are doing other things, and... um, and then in the background, we've got Mexico, if you you do a lot of it, um, you know, two Hamilton guys are are missing in Mexico, Um, someone they were connected to was found tied, and... um, um, dead in a ditch in Mexico. There's a lot going on in Mexico, and if you want to do a make it big in cocaine, now you need a Mexican connection. And on the other hand, the some of the bigger cartels are are, are just stepping over these guys and bringing it in themselves and influencing prices themselves. And so there's a lot of of scrambling. Um, you know, what can we do if they've got the top end stuff? Um, there's a lot of people who are trying to. It's their bets by going in on shipments with someone else, and then they rip each other off halfway down the line. You know, like if you and I go in on a shipment, and when it almost gets to town, then all of a sudden one of us shoots the other one and gets the whole thing, or one of us dilutes the product and uh, rips off the other guy, you know, pretending that um, nothing happened. There's a, there's a lot of odd stuff going on, and, and a huge part of it is that the uh, the cartels are a lot more aggressive um, selling in Canada, and they're um, they're kind of bigfooting a lot of the traditional groups. Maybe the best example that uh, that our listeners would remember, of course, was well the movie The French Connection, which was actually based on a, on, on a true event. Uh, but that the way it was characterized in that movie, Peter, uh, was was very structured, very organized. 
you know, and obviously and there was Hamilton connection to that too, as you've written about in the past and in some of the books that you've written. But it seemed as if everybody was on the same page, uh, so to speak. But now it seems as if there's a, a, a great deal of disarray here. It doesn't seem to be any one per entity here. It just seems to be everybody clashing. Yeah, and it's um, in Mexico, um, I think 2006, there were five big cartels. Now there's 50-something of them. And so you don't really know, even if you have a big connection down there, how your connection is doing and who your connection might be working with and working against. And if I'm working with someone, then I probably inherit all the enemies of that person. And so uh, it's just things are more splintered. Like there's just as much or more going through, but it, but the pyramid is gone. You know, you can't point to the top. With the French connection, you could point to... Um, Marseille, you could point to certain people, you could put things on a, a pyramid. That, one thing about drugs is they, they've got an odd sort of um, de- democratizing effect where a small player in his 20s can get a big connection going and overstep all these guys in their 50s, 60s, 70s and, and become a richer guy. So, so that's the battle within the battle then. I mean, you've got somebody who's, as you say, trying to make their own mark in this in this business. Uh, and obviously there's no room here. I mean, it's not as if you can apply for it. You've just got to pretty much barge your way in there and try to make a deal, I guess. Yeah, and it's sort of odd, and I'm, I'm doing a book with a Mexican journalist on this, but the, the Internet's changing a lot of it, too, because now if if I know someone's in Mexico, I can text down there and have something done to them without ever setting foot down there, and um, it's a pretty safe way of doing it. If you Google murder and um Canadians and um, places like Guadalajara, you'll see a lot of them get shot at coffee shops and that sort of thing, and they think they're on holidays or they think they're going to a meeting. And um, with pretty good privacy in the dark web, a lot of things are being done that couldn't be done 20 years ago. What about the other influences? I mean, we've talked about, obviously, what's happened here, and you've talked about some of these connections in the North American cities. Uh, we've heard a number of stories uh, about uh, about Russian organized crime, uh, about some of these other cartels, about uh, Asian uh, uh, organized crime. Uh, there are a lot of players here. Are, are, are they trying to get a foothold here as well? Um, what, what's really interesting is that... Um if you look at criminals under 35, they're a lot less racist and a lot less sort of um, ethnic, ethnically um, connected than, than older ones. And so you'll have people from all different um, walks of life working together. Um, there, there's something called the Wolfpack Alliance. That's a kind of a loose confederation of all sorts of criminal groups. And they um, they pride themselves on not being racist. Like, um, like they'll they'll talk about how the old guys were and they're not and they're pretty proud of it and so someone will belong to a traditional old group but they'll also belong to like a millennial group at the same time and that um, uh, that gives them way more scope but it just destroys the structure like it's for us to try and think um, it's almost like we're trying to be linear and they're not you know we're trying to put things in a um, organized chart and they're kind of ping ponging all over the place. But is is there, as there was back in those days, uh, an organization of of territories? In other words, Southern Ontario belongs to so and so, uh, Montreal belongs to so and so. Is that still there? Is that structure there? Loose as it might uh, be. Some of them think they think it does, and they want to keep it. And then some of them just don't buy that at all. And so, um, BC, when they hit their war, some of those guys would pop up in in Toronto or pop up in in Montreal, and then they'd. They'd still have control over over someone maybe in Vancouver, but they'd be living um, living on the St. Lawrence now. You know, you can just text over there and have it done. With with travel, 
um, being easier and the, the internet, the, um, the geography doesn't matter so much. It, it used to be you could get really, really structured. Like you could say Railway Street in Hamilton, that belongs to this group, and that's that. Um, Ottawa Street, that belongs to this group, and that's that. Now you can't say that so much anymore. So with the, 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 sh- the shootings that we've seen over the last little while, uh, is, is, is this bad blood? Is this a reconciliation for past deeds? I mean, or, or are they, is this eliminating people that may be in your way? And, you know, it could be all of those, and it'll be really interesting today. The um, uh, today, you know, it's the visitation. Tomorrow's the funeral. Who shows up, and how do how do people act when they do show up? The um, sometimes someone just feels a little bit braver because they they know they can get away with it, or they can um, they can put a distance between themselves and something else. There, there was one guy in Montreal who was using the chaos as a time to bump off his enemies. Like when everybody's trying to figure it out and they've got a, a big theory, it's a good time to trim away people that you don't like anyway, and it'll get blamed on something bigger. To what purpose, though? I mean, is is, is there an end game here, or is it just a, kind of a free-for-all? Uh, that, see, that's a, that's a phenomenal question, because you can have groups fighting and they have different purposes the old guys want to live forever and be calm and watch the grandkids um you know move on to happy lives and go to grad school and then the young guys can be thinking i'm not going to make it to 35 so i'm going to go out big and you can have those two groups competing on the same battlefield and they, they look at life totally differently in uh, the, the Musatano murder that uh, that happened uh, about a year and a half or so ago, out in Waterdown, uh, the story that we heard there was that he had found religion, that he was trying to turn his life around, uh, and uh, obviously he was still killed. Uh, and we're still, I guess, investigating that one. And there's some concerns about that, which I guess begs the question: uh, once you're in, can you get out? Um, it's really hard to get out because if you if you um you're convinced you're out, but I'm fighting with you. I'm not so sure, and I'm not so sure you might not, you know, have a rebirth and come back again. Also, there's a certain status in doing things, and so um, it's almost like in sports. If you beat, you know, someone who was the heavyweight champion, even if he's way past his prime, you still beat him. And so, um, um, and it's very, very cheap to have this sort of thing done. I, I was talking to someone this morning about, how much do you actually make, and it's it's very very cheap. And so, um, once you've crossed that moral line, um, you know. And now, what we're seeing too is people killed at their homes. You know, so the kids can be coming home from school and they see it, or the wife can open the door and see it. Uh, that, you know, back in the Paul Violi days of the late seventies, someone would be invited away. You know, you'd be invited to a card game or something, and it would be done where the family doesn't aren't the first people to to see what happened. Yeah, it seems to be a lot more flagrant uh, with what's happened. All three of them, as a matter of fact, share that. Uh, they were all done right in the driveways of these uh, these residences. Um, and, and you can't wonder exactly if there's a message being sent here or, if, uh, you know, eventually. I mean, we saw this in the old days, and you've, you chronicled some of those with the books that you wrote at the time, uh, whether it was a Paul Volpe that was killed some years ago, of course, uh, up in the Woodbridge area. Uh, I think a body was discovered at the airport at some point, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was in his wife's. Yeah, and and others that have happened like this, and you could kind of look at the structure and say, okay, I can understand where that's coming from because these guys are trying to take over. Uh, it just sounds like it's uh, it's just kind of a free for all now. Uh, but as you've written about, uh, we've talked about some of the, the elements from Russia, maybe Asian gangs. Uh, where do the biker gangs roll into this now? Um, see, they're they're pretty flexible, and then there's there you can have one 
one group with a whole bunch of different things going on it. So you can have um, people who honestly are there for brotherhood, people who are there because they've got nowhere else to go, and you can have people who are there who are very, very 21st century high-tech, trying to make money, seeing things globally, and um, there's sort of room for everybody. With One thing you get if you're, um, say, a Hell's Angel and you go to a place like Playa del Carmen and set your patch discount for something. Like if, if I'm in a biker group and I cut a deal, I can't really rip someone off without hurting my whole group. You know, I, I'm I'm representing them, and so it forces me to to be more upfront, be more honest, and so someone's going to be more likely to, to cut a deal with me than than a nobody because um, there's almost a certain branding or a pre-vetting. Peter, what about the money? You mentioned that just a second ago, and I think that's one of the myths, I guess, that, that people might have about organized crime. Because um, when we're talking about some of these cartels and, and some of the uh, the illegal drugs that are being sold and, and modded into the country, I mean, these, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. Yet we hear, as you've mentioned, uh, some of the people that are on the front lines on this, they don't make the kind of money that maybe we had imagined that they would. Uh, somebody's getting rich, though. Who's got the money? Um, it would be, you know, kind of that, the high-end importing. It's definitely not the guy pulling the trigger. And if, you, if you're promised a bunch of money for doing a killing, then it's frankly cheaper to kill you than to pay you. And so you don't – you're, you're in a very dangerous spot if you're owed a bunch of money by a bad guy because if he thinks you're going to get aggressive trying to collect it, why not just shoot you? And so it's, a lot of the stuff is done by guys who, um, you know, want a hit of drugs or want to – um, if it's outside of their group, then a lot of times it's it's not even handing them money. It's giving them an ounce of something. And if it's a guy in the group, there was a guy who's um, been murdered um, since then named Sal Kaludi, and he was believed to have done quite a few of them. And he he didn't take money for the hits, but what he'd do would be um, he'd have the power not to pay his debts. He'd have a lot more power being an extortionist. He'd have a lot more clout. And so he would do the hit, and he would let people know he did the hit, but not give them enough so that they can run to police. Like, he'd sort of say it, but not say it, and and it helped him. It sounds awful, but like almost a branding thing. But he never... I was talking to someone who knew him very well, and they never heard of him getting an envelope. It's not like the movies where you get some envelope with yeah. a whole bunch of crisp bills. And it's almost amateurish with the people who do give the money like that. There are two people that uh, police are looking for. You mentioned uh, earlier from in Mexico, they think, anyway. Uh, are they ever going to find them? Or, or did, did they meet that kind of fate that you just described? Uh, I, 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 I was looking at um, statistics for self-murders there, and 20% would be considered a glorious triumph. Um, uh, there were something like 50,000 killed in their drug war from 2006. I, I, I think there's they're gone and never will be found and i think they left ranieri out to out to send a message and these guys they just couldn't be bothered how do police handle something like this i mean obviously you know once again as they had with the other cases peter they've asked for public assistance on this uh looking for information to try to build a case and i know even when they made these arrests uh about the uh, the, the shooting a couple, about a year and a half or so ago uh, they said that they wanted to go a little further up the ladder, that these guys were, as you say, the trigger people, but they're not the ones that organize this thing. What, what's the chances of success to actually make something like that stick? Um, I, I think they were, Hamilton police were extremely smart when they floated out the $50,000 reward. I think that was um, brilliant because I, I doubt the shooter got 
got a tenth of that if we, you know, so that so when someone gets stiffed or gets resentful, then they start looking at the payoff, and then somewhere along the line, they, the coin drops that this isn't the life that they thought it was, and that it's 24-7, and they can't get out of it. And um, I was speaking with a former police officer last week who talked about um, some of the conversations he had with people shortly before they were killed when they were talking about how they just can't get out, and it was... It was odd because they they would want their family members to be kind of um, the cop to talk to them and kind of ease them out or talk them out of it because they these guys it's like they're going down a hill and they they can never change the momentum. But again, that's one of those other ideas that people have about uh, well omerta. In other words, silence. Nobody talks about anything. But it sounds to me as if uh, if you you get the right person, they will they'll talk. Oh, yeah, and I mean, pretty much every big trial has someone who was uh, swearing brotherhood in silence right up until it got got messy and then um, and then saw the light. Peter, uh, as always, thanks so much for the time and uh, trying to shed some light on this. As you say, this is uh, just another chapter in uh, the ongoing saga. Uh, and, of course, you chronicle this, obviously, with the TV series Bad Blood, uh, which I know is basically uh, based on, on, on the situations that happened in Montreal. But uh, this is uh, life imitating art, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, isn't it? Yeah, and some of these guys imitate the art, so who knows where it starts. Well, and you'll write about it when you find out, I'm sure. Peter, thanks again. Appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks. I enjoyed it. Take care. Peter Edwards, of course, a crime writer for the Toronto Star and author of a number of different books about organized crime. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, the uh, Ontario government uh, announced that they were going to be reworking uh, the delivery of health care here in this province, and uh, it's raised a lot of concerns and probably... Maybe yeah, I raised more questions than it did answers. Uh, we did have the Minister of Health uh, on the program on Friday uh, trying to get some clarity on this, but uh, some legitimate concerns about what's going to help, especially when it comes to a, a, the delivery of mental health programs. Uh, we had those discussions, of course, and ongoing discussions for the last little while. It was an, on a national level, but uh, we have to worry about what's going to be happening here in Ontario. Uh, once you open that can of worms, is, is it going to be a better system? Is it going to be a more effective system? Well, uh, many of us are concerned about this, including our next guest. Uh, Noah Irvine is a Guelph teenager uh, who is fighting for action on mental health. His uh, website is uh, stepupanddobetter.com. And uh, we welcome Noah to the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Noah, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, let, uh, maybe give us a little background. How did you get involved in this? How did uh, This is obviously something that you're very passionate about. How did that develop? Yes, sir. Um, I, uh, in 2005, lost my mother to a uh, suicide. Uh, she was 24 and I was 5. And then in 2015, I lost my father to an addictions overdose. Uh, he was 40 and I was uh, 15. Um, both of those deaths uh, inspired me to write letters across Canada to politicians, both at the federal and provincial levels of government, uh, intermingled uh, in that uh, smorgasbord of letters was uh, letters to mayors uh, across Canada as well. Uh, and Ever since the Ford government t- took office, I-, I wrote them all a letter, uh, including the opposition parties, um, in August, and uh, have yet to receive many responses from uh, from uh, the Ford uh, government or, or their um, or their opposition uh, critics. I was going to ask you about the feedback and response to this, because uh, somebody who's as passionate about this and, and obviously uh, dedicated to this to actually sit down and write those letters, you'd like to think that you're going to get uh, some kind of a response anyway. Yeah, you uh, you would like to, but many of them, uh, their excuse is often uh, not my constituent, therefore we don't respond to non-constituents. My argument is at any point in time, 
any member in a government could be made a minister, and therefore every member of that uh, governing party uh, needs to be prepared for that potential of becoming a minister, and therefore needs to be concerned with not just their constituents, but also the betterment of this province, or in the federal case, the country. Well, and for heaven's sakes, I mean, health care, especially the delivery of mental health services, is some, it's everybody's business. Absolutely. But, well, we'll leave the politicians, they'll have to be responsible for their actions or inactions, I guess, as the case goes on. So let's let's talk a little bit about, about what you'd like to see happen and maybe the services that are available now. Uh, obviously, in your area, uh, you've had uh, two tragedies, obviously, in your life with your parents. Uh, it, it, do you feel as if the services let you down, let this family down, and are letting other people down that are dealing with mental health issues? I think uh, the services are definitely... Uh, letting people down, no, no question about that. But I think the bigger letdown is lack of political leadership on this file um, and the delegation of health services to the Lynn Local Health Integration Networks. I think that plays a larger role in the systemic failure of mental health and addictions care in this province. Uh, for my mom and dad, I know that the stigma played a large role in their death. However, uh, they were in significant contact with the healthcare system and other uh, provincial programs such as ODSP. My father had a physical ailment uh, that inhibited him to work. Uh, so they had contact with the other provincial services, and yet uh, in that time, they were still let down by this province. So is it the program's part of that, but it is also the government of Ontario uh, that, that has also failed miserably in the case of my family, but also families across this province. Is it a matter of resources, not enough resources? I have always said uh, when talking to politicians across this province and across this country that I believe we've got the money. I just don't think we spend it appropriately. In some regards to the lens, we're spending almost $334,000 on salaries for the CEOs of Linz. Uh that's about as much as the Prime Minister makes. So those are provincial dollars going to one person in the organization of the of one Lynn. Uh I have serious concerns about that, and I have serious concerns whether or not the money in this province is being spent effectively. I think it's there. I think we need to spend it effectively. So how do we how do we turn this thing around then? I mean, because this is, the bureaucracy is always going to be a concern in just about every portfolio, I guess, in every ministry. Uh, but you'd like to think that we're going to get a bang for our health care buck with uh, with the money that we're putting into the system. I know you know those stats. It's uh, yeah. I think something like forty seven cents out of every tax dollar I think goes to health care now, but not much of that towards mental health services. Now, obviously, there has to be a, a reevaluation of priorities. I would think, Noah. Well, absolutely, there needs to be a. a the funding needs to increase, without a doubt. However, uh, I believe quite firmly that uh, the first step in this is uh, bringing in a Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions into this province, because mental health and addictions is uh, delegated to eight ministries, not just the Ministry of Health, but eight. Uh, it's confirmed in a 2010 Select Committee report. It's documented both uh, both. Uh, the opposition and the government and the, and the third and fourth party oppositions all understand that mental health doesn't just lie in uh, the Ministry of Health, and it needs to. It needs to lie in its own ministry. Mental health is as large as a ministry. It needs a ministry, and it needs a minister that can be held responsible for the success or failure of this system. And currently, 
a success or failure is not, it is, it is not, uh, we cannot effectively hold to account politicians for the success or failure of this. We can address the sum, but we cannot hold accountable uh, for the ongoing systemic failure of this healthcare system. There is one thing that uh, that I did agree with that, that the government was talking about the other day. As I mentioned in my preamble, we had the uh, the health minister, uh, Christian Elliott, on the program on Friday. Uh, is people have difficulty navigating the system, the healthcare system, and especially with mental health issues. Uh, in, in other words, you you may have a doctor, or you may have somebody that you really. Uh, if you have to go to one other department, or have to go to somebody else to get help on this, it's almost like you're starting all over again. And uh, in a case, obviously, it can take weeks, sometimes months, for you to actually make that connection that you need. And uh, you know, time and minutes matter in a situation like this, don't they? Absolutely, and uh, I agree with the minister that uh, it is a very complex, ineffective system. It is not efficient. I think when when I'm talking with politicians across Canada, Saskatchewan, I'll use them as an example, had 12 health regions. It's very similar to the Lynn's. Mm-hmm. They've now gone down to one because of the ineffectiveness of that system. It became ineffective. It became too... It became too disjointed. I mean, in Ontario, for many of us, we probably don't know that we're sending children to Manitoba who are in contact with the Ministry of Children and Youth Services, now the Ministry of Community Social Services. We are sending people outside this province for health care because we can't provide it in this province. That should not be happening. No, that's a, a frightening statistic to understand with the resources that we have here that, that we can't even look after our own. And, and obviously that's one of the reasons we need to talk about this. Are you comfortable, though, Noah, that uh, that when the minister or the premier, for that matter, say that, look, we're going to reach out, we're gonna, we want to find out what you need, what you're looking for here? Uh, I mean, there's, there's hearing and there's listening. Uh, they may hear us, but are they going to listen to it when they decide they're going to do some changes to the, the system? No, they're not going to listen. Uh, if they want, if the minister wants to listen, she should remember that she was on a 2010 select committee report put out by the government of Ontario at the time. She was vice uh, chair of said committee. And if she wanted to listen, she signed her name onto a provincial report saying, I listened. I don't think she did. Nor do I think that Sylvia Jones, who is also a minister, who is also on this committee, I don't think she listened either. Because if they did listen, they would remember that in 2010 there was a report calling for better mental health services in this province, addressing the opioid crisis we now currently find ourselves in, yet nothing was done with that report. If they want a starting point, that reports it. I don't know if they want to listen, though. Well, because there are certain elements to, to the discussion that the government just doesn't seem to want to pay much attention to. I mean, you know, we, you've seen the controversy. I know it's, uh, it's certainly something that's reared its head here in the Hamilton area, and even it comes to something like safe injection sites. Uh, and there seemed to be a philosophical opposition to that by this new government. And, uh, you know, they're not listening to the professionals then, if they're going to close their eyes to and close their minds, really, uh, to what might be part of the solution. Yeah, you know, the minister, I think, when she talks about consultation, that's a very rich statement when you've already drafted 85 pages of, of potential legislation. Consul, consultation should be done before you draft legislation. And I don't know if we're going to get much consultation. Uh, and by that extent, I don't know if we're going to get much listening done in this province if you've got 
a government like that. Well, yeah, when you see a scenario like that and you see the the way that they're trying to stack things up here, and as you, the, the legislation that was leaked last week, and we're told that there could actually be more that's uh, that's going to be leaked today, uh, it kind of makes it look as if they've already decided what they're going to do and they've already got this out there and this is the way it's going to be. Um, and the consultation then is, is really totally useless. It's pointless and it'll uh, if they do the consultation, it'll be a waste of taxpayers' money because we've already done consultation. You just got to open uh, the report up that's been thrown on a shelf in the legislative library and collected dust. Open the report up and you can read what people said nine years ago. It'll be the exact same that people say today. What about the facilities, Noah? And let's, let's use your example of Guelph, your hometown. Uh, of, of what is available then for somebody who's listening to this and says, you know what, I need to help, I need to reach out. Uh, how do you get into the system? How, how do you get that first contact in, 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 uh, in the community. If people are in crisis and you call for uh, the police to, to respond because you're concerned about somebody's safety or well-being, um, those persons, I believe, go straight to the hospital. Uh, but also in Guelph, there's a, a team funded by Canadian Mental Health Association that works in partnership with the Guelph Police Service along with the Waterloo Regional Police Service, I believe. And uh, they are a team of uh, nurses uh, that can... Uh, help persons in crisis and divert them away from the from the hospital so that it doesn't back up the ER because that has been a significant problem in Guelph, which was bringing too many people who are in crisis to the ER and then not having enough cops to police the city. Uh, so that is one. Uh, we also have the Homewood Health Centre in, in Guelph. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to that, I'm not really sure. Uh, I can't really comment on the Homewood Health Centre, but uh, I know that for Guelph, there's about 160 programs put out by Canadian Mental Health. There's, I believe, 13 to 20 funded by the local health integration network. So there are programs in town, uh, but navigating the services are difficult. I, I'll be quite frank. It was difficult for my father and it was difficult for my uh, for my mom. I mean, my dad had to go seek treatment in, uh, in Toronto uh, for his addictions issues. Uh, so having locally available resources was not a luxury my father was able to uh, to capitalize on. Do we good, do a good enough job of, of informing people to, so they know where to go uh, to, to seek help? Um, I think we're getting better. We're nowhere near where we need to be. Uh, and I think that, that stems from, I lost my mom and dad, uh, mom more so than dad, when the stigma was still very much in the forefront of this. I think for dad, it got a little bit better in terms of he had some access of where to go, but I, I don't think we're advertising as, as best as we could, but we are getting better. No question about that. I mean, we're into situations now, uh, and, and I know you've talked about first responders and, and their role in this, uh, and, and the, of course, some of the challenges, and, and that stigma is still there in many examples, and I, we see this time and time again. Uh, where sometimes the most difficult thing to get people to do is to, that first step to say, yes, I do need help. Uh, you know, the bravado that, no, I, I can tough this out, I can do this, or maybe even getting pressure from people around you that say, hey, you know, suck it up, you can do this, so you don't need to do, to go down this road, you don't need to get that kind of assistance. It's, it's almost as if somebody's trying to talk you out of it sometimes, and that, that makes that first step that much more difficult to take. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it Without a doubt, uh, it does. Uh, without a doubt, um when my mom died to a suicide, that was, uh, I believe, one of the first suicides published in a local paper here. 
because it, it just wasn't talked about. People often, because of the stigma, labeled it as a sudden death. Uh, they didn't talk about what actually happened. And, uh, you know, with, with the stigma continuing, it is getting better, I think. For my dad, it got better, but it is still there and it still needs to, to disappear because there's no reason you can't get uh, help for mental health or addictions. No, if, hypothetically, if, if the health minister called you this afternoon and said, look, it, I just saw your note, the staff gave it to me, whatever, the, uh, we need to talk. Uh, give me your ideas. Give me your input as to what you'd like to see. I, I know that'd be perfect if that would have happened, but what would you say? What, would you, what was the priority, job one, for the, for the minister to try to, to get this back on track, especially when it comes to the delivery of mental health services? Yeah, first off, the 23 recommendations in that select committee report need to be uh, need to be put in place. Um, nine years is unacceptable for a report to sit with pretty good re- recommendations to attempting to fix the healthcare system in this province. Second, a ministry should be immediately considered in this government and it should be implemented. Uh, if not a ministry, a parliamentary secretary to, or sorry, parliamentary assistant to the minister uh, to a, whose sole responsibility would be mental health and addictions. Uh, third, the minister needs to call her federal counterparts in the prime minister's office and ask the prime minister to put in uh, a federal secretariat of mental health and addictions to provide national leadership on a national crisis. And the fourth, somebody needs to address where the money is going. And somebody, I would like to have the numbers on how much we actually spend in this province. I can't get numbers uh, as to how much we spend on mental health and addictions in this province. For whatever reason, I just can't. I've called ministries before. I can't get those numbers. And I think the minister needs to make sure that uh, once the number is admitted, that all that money is going directly to the people that need it. Um, and it would be nice if the minister would call, but uh, it doesn't seem like this government is willing to talk to Ontarians like they had promised. You use the word crisis uh, when you were describing this, but I think given the scope of, and you just talked about the opioid uh, circumstance, about mental health issues, about first responders, uh, crisis is not too strong a word, is it? Uh, crisis might be a little bit uh, too lenient. Uh, epidemic yeah. is another way of wording this, because uh, you see it in BC. I mean, BC declared a public health emergency, I believe, what, two years ago? Mm-hmm. Years ago? I mean, that was just for opioid uh, addictions. Um you know, it's, uh, it is not, I don't think it is too extreme of a word, and I think epidemic might uh, better suit the mental health as what it is now. It is an epidemic, it is a public health emergency, and it needs to be addressed by a government who's willing and committed to the people of this province and this, and this country. Noah, you have to be commended for uh, your dedication to this and, uh, and just sticking with this. Uh, here's hoping that uh, that some people are going to listen at Queen's Park and that uh, that you can have an impact on this. So uh, take people to your website, uh, once again, stepupanddobetter.com, uh, if you want to get some more information about this. Thanks so much for the time, Nora. We'll stay in touch. Yep, thanks so much. Take care. Uh, Nora Irvin, of course, uh, from Guelph, uh, a champion, and that's what we need uh, when it comes to the delivery of mental health, a champion, and he's indeed filling that role. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.